Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 9th, 2022. Uh, as always in this business, we're celebrating one of anniversary or another, although I'm not sure the word celebration is appropriate for the subject we're going to be talking about today. Uh, it's around a year ago that the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and were replaced by uh, the Taliban, the current government of Afghanistan. Um, most symbolized by the Taliban taking Kabul. Lots of comparisons last year and no doubt this month with American retreat from Vietnam. Um, the Americans are still somehow involved in Afghanistan. A few weeks ago, an Al-Qaeda chief was assassinated by a U.S. strike. But it seems as if the U.S. war against Al-Qaeda and U.S. involvement in, in Afghanistan kind of exist in a weird symbolic or surreal parallel. They're not always connected. Um, certainly the Taliban are back in power, which is bad news, I think, for anyone who cares about liberty or dignity or decency. Uh, the return to the power, the, the, the Taliban's return to power has not uh, suggested that they've learned any of the lessons or improved or softened in any way. There was a piece uh, last weekend in The Guardian in particular, which was just so chilling, so shocking to me. They, they beat girls just for smiling. Life in Afghanistan one year after the Taliban's return. Um, lots of opinions on a year later, Biden's Afghan exit. Peter Bergen at CNN suggests that a year later, the decision looks even worse, which is quite an achievement given how horrendous, hideous it appeared a year ago. Most people agree. David Petraeus, for example, uh, writing in The Atlantic, suggests that Afghanistan did not have to turn out this way. Um, one man who's given a great deal of thought to what he calls America's, uh, the, the fifth act, America's end in Afghanistan, is my guest on the show today, Elliot Ackerman. He's a very distinguished writer. I'm not sure if he's young. He always seems rather young to me. Uh, the author of many acclaimed best-selling books. Uh, he's also a former uh, soldier, so he knows what he's talking about. And he's joining us today. Elliot, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Elliot, how catastrophic was this decision? Do you agree uh, do you agree with Bergen and, uh, and CNN that it, it looks even worse a year later, Biden's decision to leave? And do you agree with Petraeus that it didn't have to turn out this way? Well, I agree that it didn't have to uh, turn out this way, certainly. Um, I think if, you know, we if we look at where the war in Afghanistan was in 2018 before President Trump began negotiating with the Taliban, you know, we had gotten our troop presence down to 10,000 or less American troops. Uh, casualties were were very low in 2020, for instance. Uh, as many U.S. fewer U.S. service members died in Afghanistan than died at Camp Pendleton, which is one single Marine base in training accidents. Um, so if we're just talking about the cost of the war at that point, you know, we had transferred most of those costs to the Afghan uh, military. So 
for that limited cost, it gave us, it gave America a presence in Afghanistan and a key portion of Central Asia and a nation that shares a land border with China and Iran. Um, the withdrawal now, we have no presence in Afghanistan. It's, it's turned into a vacuum. Um, yes, we saw the recent uh, assassination of Zawahiri, uh, the leader of Al-Qaeda, um, but it begs the broader question of, you know, what was he even doing in Afghanistan? So um, I don't think we can look at the, the withdrawal as a successful policy prescription for the United States and Central Asia. And I think we're still uh, going to learn uh, what the long-term consequences are of last summer's debacle. In other words, Elliot, it was and remains a giant fuck up. Uh, put much more, words, not yours, much more eloquently than I just said, yes, it, it remains and was a giant fuck up. Why? You've given a great deal of thought historically and in terms of being on the ground there. You've spent some time there as a soldier, as a writer. What fundamentally has gone wrong in terms of American engagement in Afghanistan? I think at the root of a little bit of the, you know, the the American withdrawal, right, is this idea that, you know, we need to end the forever war. You know, we need to end the war in Afghanistan. So somewhere in that idea of ending the war is the idea that the war only ends when all of the troops come home, when every last single American service member has returned. That's when the war in Afghanistan is over. But if you look back at American war making in the last 75 to 80 years since the Second World War, you know, that hasn't been the case. I mean, the Second World War ended and the U.S. troops, I mean, they, we stayed in Europe and we stayed in, in, in the Pacific, in Japan and in bases like Okinawa. You know, the Korean War ended. We still have troops stationed on the Korean Peninsula securing a peace. In fact, the only time a war ends and all the troops come home is when we lose the war. And so I think putting this precondition that the war can only be over when all the troops come home onto Afghanistan assured that the end of the war would be uh, a defeat. What are the comparisons with this retreat from Afghanistan, essentially a surrender? Is it Bay of Pigs? Is it Vietnam? What, 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 what events from the past in American foreign policy? I mean, you know, they say, right, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. So I think, yes, and Afghanistan rhymes with another of, of American debacles. Um, I think... Yes, the, the Vietnam comparison is apt. And after President Biden announced in April of 2021 that the withdrawal would occur in the subsequent uh, September 11th, you know, he went on to great lengths saying that, you know, you're not going to see a repeat of Saigon here. This is going to be different, handled much better. And I would argue it wasn't a repeat of Saigon. It was far worse than Saigon in 1975, uh, because unlike in Saigon, all of the Afghans who were trying to get out you know, were connected to the much wider world. So there was this huge outcry you didn't have in Saigon um, through social media, through, you know, just messaging apps, WhatsApp, Signal. Um, so we got a much more visceral feel for what the collapse looked like. You personalized the book in part. You write about some of your relationships. Tomorrow I'm doing an interview actually with Tom Schumann and Zainullah Zaki. I'm sure you're familiar with them, if, if not knowing them, always faithful, a story of war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. That's 
very chilling when you read that. Now, why do Americans struggle to think of anything beyond the personal? Why, or, or maybe not so much your book, which is a, a more ambitious take on this, but why are so many of the books reducing everything to the personal? You mean as opposed to the, the, the politics? As opposed to the geostrategic, to the political. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to be critical yeah. of this book because I'm doing an interview with these guys tomorrow. They have their story. It's a legitimate, important story. But why are these the kinds of books that generally sell? Why are the kind of movies that will inevitably made about the fall of Kabul and the American retreat will focus on one relationship between a, a journalist or a diplomat and a translator? Why can't we get beyond the personal in America? You're talking to me from Los Angeles. Can we blame everything on Hollywood? Yeah. No, I'm actually, I'm actually in New York today. Um, but I you're, think a hot, you're an L.A. guy. You grew up there. Yeah, I, grew up in LA. I grew up in L.A. That's right. Um, I think that's a really, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, maybe part of it is that the, you know, that the, the politics can often be too divisive. So uh, when people are trying to tell a story, it's easier to tell a non-political story because you can bring more people into the story. Um, that maybe also politics can get a little bit you know, snoozy that the, you know, the way you make people care about an issue isn't necessarily through, you know, clinical kind of political arguments that can feel like, you know, you're reading a textbook, but by, by bringing it down to the personal level. So maybe that's why we get more of those types of stories. Um, that being said, you know, I, I believe in, in my books, you know, I, I try to write about this, that, you know, all politics is personal. It's all local. So, you know, you can, you can extrapolate from a story about, you know, a group of individuals, much larger, uh, political themes, um, and, you know, and I try to do that in the Fifth Act. I mean, it's a memoir, but right. uh, it's a memoir. We, we've done a number of books on Afghanistan. We did one with a former uh, American soldier. Well, current, I think he's still maybe a Gus Biggio uh, mm-hmm. has a book, uh, The Wolves of Helmand. Yeah. And when he came on the show, he showed me lots of images, lots of photographs of very beautiful Afghan children. What are your memories, principally? Uh, Elliot of Afghanistan. When you think of that tragic, complicated country now, what do you think of? Your your book also comes with photographs, but less nostalgic, less romantic. Yeah, I think the photo. I mean, the photos that are in my book are kind of. I don't know I think just a little more impressionistic. I wanted to share photos that would give a reader kind of a sense of what it was feeling like in those moments. But I think you know when I think of. My time in Afghanistan, I think Afghanistan is a, a place, at least as I experienced, of a lot of extremes. I mean, you know, the the the, the people have been in, I mean, you know, we say our war was a 20-year war. I mean, their war has gone on since 1979. I mean, it's a life, it's a, it's a lifetime's worth of of war. Um, so that is extreme. I mean, well, you could go back to the, I mean, if you want to look at anti-colonial wars, you could go back to the 19th century or the 18th century in Afghanistan absolutely. against the British. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, you have uh, you have wars of extreme durations there. You have obviously the extreme suffering that comes with that. Um, You have a people who I found to be, largely speaking, extreme, extremely hospitable and in many cases, extremely optimistic, even in the face of all of this. Um, You know, I've you know, I've formed like very close friendships that endure to this day with um, the Afghans I've fought alongside, you know, a number of whom have now come and become Americans. So 
So when I think of Afghanistan, I think of it as sort of a, a place, again, a place of extremes, you know, and sort of this, um, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, an optimism that I, I found many Afghans would have, which was itself kind of extreme because we're confronted with this extreme suffering. There was, you know, that, you know, that type of just, again, I have another word for it, but optimism uh, that was in some ways jarring um, because other people would, would despair uh, given the circumstances. And also from an American perspective, especially someone like you who understands this situation as well as anyone, a, a certain sort of sadness about that optimism in the sense that we have, we Americans have let the Afghan people down. Is that fair? Yes. I Listen, I think we as Americans have let the Afghan people down and the Afghan people in some ways have let the Americans down. I mean, there's no shortage of blame. If you look at the if you look at the, the last 20 years of war, there's no shortage of blame for why things have not worked out better. Um, so I think there is a sadness. And, you know, the reason the book is called The Fifth Act um, is because tragedies typically occur if you look at classic dramatic structures they're told tragedies are told in five acts you know from horace to shakespeare and sort of how do we you know, how do i tell the story that's 20 years of war that puts it into a kind of a narrative shape and as i'm going to do with five acts it's going to be bush obama uh trump biden and the fifth act is the taliban and i want to tell the story of five distinct evacuation cases from the summer um some of which worked out and others of which didn't work out um so but yes, I, I, you know, I, obviously Afghanistan is a place that has a, a long um, and, and troubled history. Um, and now we as Americans, you know, have had our chapter uh, of involvement there. But, you know, that being said, too, I, you know, the, the U.S. W might be ready to turn the page on Afghanistan. It might be done with it. But I, I have a feeling that Afghanistan is certainly not done with the U.S. We did a, a show with British political scientist Elizabeth Leake. Uh, she has a book out, uh, Afghan Crucible, The Soviet Invasion and the Making of Modern Afghanistan. We entitled it first as Tragedy, then as Farce, How the Soviet and American Invasions of Afghanistan are Comparable. You call your book The Fifth Act, and as you say, there are five acts you, you, you attach with American presidents. Are, are the Soviets in any of these acts? Is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, should it be part of one of the acts of your book of the American story in Afghanistan. Well, I mean the 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 Soviet invasion certainly looms large um, throughout the book, and it loomed large throughout my time in Afghanistan. I mean, I remember, and I write about this in the book. Um, I was once on uh, with an Afghan unit that I helped advise. We once went on a patrol to a, a very remote village. And one of the reasons we went there was we had no record of anyone from our firebase ever having visited. Um, in 10 years, this one village. So we drove for days and days and days to get out there. When we arrived, um, the Afghans I was with, you know, gathered up some of the, you know, the local tribal elders, kind of have a meeting with them. And I was sort of hanging back in, in my truck with my interpreter. Um, uh, cause you know, it wasn't my place necessarily to be having this meeting with these, these elders. It was an Afghan, all Afghan meeting. And I was just sort of watching them. And I was watching sort of how perplexed these elders were when we sort of arrived because no one had visited them for so long. And I asked my interpreter, I said, you know, wow, like, you know, what do they think of, what do you think they think of you guys, you know, in your, you know, American style uniforms and your hiking boots and your, you know, and your wraparound sunglasses, like they probably, they must think you guys are Americans. 
And he laughed at me and he said, no, 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 they don't think we're Americans. He's like, they think we're Russians. What does that say? That Americans and Russians are really not that much different? Well, it, 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 I think it speaks to the, the way time passes differently depending where you go. Um, and that, you know, it, it speaks to, you know, as much as we live in this sort of interconnected world, there are parts of the world that are not as connected where time passes differently. And, you know, you've, I certainly experienced that in Afghanistan where you would, you know, you could drive, there are parts of Afghanistan I drove around and I would, you know, be told like in this valley, there's an ambush position um, where, you know, we should be careful and also be told like that ambush position was one that the Mujahideen used against the Soviets. And that before that was used against the British. I mean, that's how old um, the, the, you know, the, these geographical choke points were. And so it's like, you know, watching people who, who pass down those ambush positions and those places where they do battle kind of like intergenerational heirlooms. And it's just a way of thinking about conflict and history that is, you know, that is, that is different than how Americans necessarily think about it. Elliot, uh, your, 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 your five acts, tr tr tre uh, your, your, your fifth act, uh, Americans end of Afghanistan treats each act as somehow connected there's a kind of hidden quality to the American intervention in or American invasion of Afghanistan, which is, of course, associated with bin, uh, Osama bin Laden. We did a show with Nelly Lahoud a couple of months ago. She has a new book out, The Bin Laden Papers, um, which speaks, reveals some interesting aspects of bin Laden that hadn't been known before. How does Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, that aren't really an Afghan story, they seem have simply located themselves in Afghanistan because of its relatively stateless situation. How does Al-Qaeda fit itself into the five acts of, of American involvement in Afghanistan? Well, you know, obviously it's the, you know, it's the causes belly for the American invasion after 9-11 um, uh, is Al-Qaeda. But as the war progresses, one of the great mistakes that America and NATO make is early on, Al Qaeda and the Taliban are sort of conflated. They're sort of wrapped together um, as though they are one and the same. And I would argue that that's a massive strategic mistake that we make. Um, and sometimes people have asked me, well, you know, is there any way to win to win the war in Afghanistan? I would argue, you know, you could certainly imagine a very different outcome if after 9/11. You know, we had limited it. We had limited our efforts in Afghanistan to an anti-terrorism or counterterrorism mission. We hadn't invaded Iraq and we'd done, you know, and we decided that we were going to try to incorporate elements of the Taliban into the Afghan government when the Afghan government was at its strongest after our invasion, um, thus sort of tempering the more radical elements of the Taliban. We didn't do that. I would argue one of the reasons we didn't do that was because, at least in the American narrative, the Taliban and Al Qaeda were basically they became the same in our lexicon. And that was a mistake. It was a mistake in much the same way that during Vietnam, the United States believed that the Vietnam War and the, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army, you know, represented transnational communism, which, you know, yes, they were communists. But what that war was really about from a Vietnamese perspective was a war of national liberation. And we missed that. In Vietnam, and because we missed that, we we didn't understand the war. We were fighting and lost the war. And I would argue, in Afghanistan, you know, we similarly thought that we were fighting, uh, you know, a war of 
transnational terrorism. Uh, but, you know, we are actually, in many respects, also fighting, at least from the Taliban perspective, in a war of national liberation, where the Taliban wanted to liberate Afghanistan from all, all foreigners unequivocally. And because it took us a long time to sort of understand that, and because we made this mistake of conflating the Taliban with Al-Qaeda, again, that contributed to us losing the war. Elliot, uh, I'm not claiming to be an expert on this stuff, but to me, at least, it was obvious at the time that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban weren't the same thing. How could policymakers have made such a profound error when many people recognize that you may not like the Taliban, but the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were not essentially connected? Well, I think it's less that, you know, sort of, you know, air do I policy wonks didn't understand this. I, you know, by and large, they, they did. But politically, um, you know, in the sort of very visceral American response to 9-11, which is, you know, understandable, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are set up as being at least on a, you know, on a completely morally equivalent plane, which created almost no political space to deal with the Taliban. I mean, it's years before the United States. It's, it's at the end of the Obama administration before the United States starts sort of dealing with the Taliban and having, having overtures towards the Taliban. And because, because there was no political space for it before amongst our domestic politicians, they sort of painted themselves into a corner with regards to the Taliban. And, you know, and that, you know, that took options off the table vis-a-vis uh, -vis ending the war in Afghanistan sooner. Elliot, most people will know you from your, your, your novels. Um, as we're discussing Afghanistan and the complexity and the absurdity and the various misunderstandings and the fact that one war was being formally fought when another war was in reality being fought, do you think it requires a novelist, essentially a novelist like you, to make sense of this? Um, we've done some shows with other novelists, Brad Taylor, for example, different kind of novelists from you. Do you think, as with Vietnam, for example, the most memorable books ultimately by Americans on Afghanistan will be by novelists? And in a sense, are you really a novelist here in the Fifth Act? Well, I think that, um, you know, you're trying to tell a good story and the difference between you know, a story a that bad story. it's not a good story. It's a terrible story, right? No, but I mean, a story that, you know, that, that you want, that's a story people will remember, right? I mean, if you're a novelist, you're, you know, you're a storyteller. So, um, and how do you make, you know, how do you create uh, what, you know, the, the Viet, you mentioned Vietnam writers, the Vietnam writer, Tim O'Brien talks a lot about the idea of verisimilitude, you know, that I might tell you as a novelist, a story that's not true, but the feelings and the emotions it will evoke in you will be true emotions. Like maybe I can make you feel, Tim O'Brien says, maybe I can make you feel how I felt in this firefight in Vietnam by telling you a story that's not actually uh, true. But, you know, the tools of a, the novelist is using are a little bit different than the tools that a memoirist are using. Um, obviously, you can't just go make up a bunch of stuff when you're a memoirist. Um, but I would argue the the end state you're trying to reach is is similar, where someone you know, reads a story that feels very true um, and can understand, um, you know, the the emotions that the author is is trying to evoke. So uh, so I, I you know, I, I write journalism, I write novels. And for me, at the end of the day, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to write something that that feels true. Elliot, you don't just write novels and journalism. Uh, you're also a, a former Marine. You did five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
as a former Marine, what do you bring to the fifth act that a, a regular traditional policymaker in Washington, D.C. or a political scientist will miss, do you think? You know, I would say the one thing the, you know, the wars expose me to or what war does is it kind of takes your emotional aperture and it sort of throttles it wide open. Meaning um, in war, you see on the one hand, like, you know, the most ex extreme uh, depravity that people are capable of. Uh, you know, you see brutality uh, in very disrupting ways, you know, you really see that kind of extreme of, of, of humanity. On the other hand, you also see the extreme of what people are willing to do for each other of, of, you know, love and sacrifice. And so kind of having your aperture throttled open in that way, um, I, I'll just say for me, sort of, it, it informs the types of stories that I'm telling um, and has informed what I, you know, kind of my views on humanity. And that certainly comes forward in my writing. So I'd say that's how sort of at least the war has informed uh, my writing life. You brought up Tim O'Brien, The Things They Carried, um, very famous book about Vietnam. We did a show with Jason Kander, a uh, former soldier, again, like you. He has a book out, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. He's also a rising star, was a rising star in the Democratic Party. You may know him. Um, would a more appropriate book about American involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq be, rather than the things they carried, the things you brought home? I mean, I don't know what your experience of PTSD was or is, but this generation of soldiers who fought in Afghanistan, American soldiers, um, have brought home something that perhaps not all generations of soldiers have. What's your take on this? Or is it just another tragic story of another generation involved in a foreign war? Well, I think these wars have certainly been different in certain ways. I mean, if you look at previous American wars, whether they be, you know, Vietnam or the Second World War, or even the First World War, you know, wars then when we fought them were generationally defining events. I mean, Vietnam defined the generation that came of age in the 60s. You had the greatest generation, World War II. And in the First World War, you had the lost generation. You know, when I look at 9-11 and the wars that followed and how they affected my generation, you know, they were not generationally defining. You know, I would not say, for instance, that I am part of like a lost generation. I would say that I uh, and others like me represent sort of the lost part of a generation, that our experience was somewhat of a niche experience. And that is kind of unique in how America has experienced wars of this magnitude in the past. Um, and it also, you know, it, it changes what it means to you know, to come home and to reintegrate into society because the experience that you had wasn't necessarily a common one or that is recognizable uh, to your contemporaries. In the fifth act, you tell the story of your father-in-law. Uh, I think he was an OSS officer in the Second World War, more of a kind of Hollywood-style hero, I guess. Um, American soldiers in overseas in Iraq and, 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 and Afghanistan have been forgotten uh, because there's no national service. We did a show with Phil Clay. I'm sure you know his work as well, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. Do you think one of the problems, uh, Elliot, is, I mean, you chose to sign up, uh, but that the burden of overseas war in America today is not being shared, which is undermining both 
foreign policy and ultimately democracy? Uh, I think it's a huge issue in the United States right now. And I think that um, it has become too easy for America to go to war, at least it, it seems too easy, and that these forever wars were wars in which the American population was anesthetized to their costs. You know, so, you know, they were fought by an all-volunteer military, and the uh, there was never a war tax. It was just put into the, the national deficit. Um, so that is certainly not a healthy way for a, a democracy, for a republic to go about waging war. And, uh, and when we look at the outcome, you have also a very, that leads to a very wide civil military divide. And, you know, if you, when you go back through history, right, from Caesar's Rome to Napoleon's France, when you couple uh, a large standing military in which there's a civil military divide with very dysfunctional partisan politics, uh, the intersection of those two is is not good for uh, democracy. And that's the exact position the United States is in right now. We did a show with Mark Esper last month. The news today is that General Miley apparently drafted a scathing letter of resignation to Trump. The military was the one institution that seemed to effectively stand up to Trump. What's your sense of the credibility of the American military uh, broadly, not not in the world, but in, in America itself. It doesn't seem, ironically, especially in comparison to Vietnam, that the catastrophe in Afghanistan has undermined the reputation of American generals or American soldiers overseas. Is it because it's always a sideshow and most people simply don't care and don't know? Um, I think it might be a little bit of that. I think it is all. what also contributes to it is that, um, you know, the Almost every institution in the United States, public or private at this point, has been politicized or is perceived as having some overt political bias. And the military, I would say, is the one institution that does, that has not been politicized in this way in American life. And it shouldn't surprise us that it's that 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 it, that it follows that it's sort of the most trusted institution because it doesn't have this political bias. But both you know, Democrats and Republicans are certainly making efforts to try to politicize the U.S. military. And the U.S. military is not a monolith. It's not like the U.S. military goes all Democrat or all Republican. You know, people in the U.S. military, just like all citizens, have their political biases. The only difference is there's a culture in the military, which is a culture of omerta. You don't talk about you don't talk politics when you're in uniform. Um, you're not supposed to. You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to be a partisan. Um, but if you keep stress testing the U.S. military, if you look at our history, um, you know, eventually, you know, you could paint people into a corner where they're forced to reveal um, their political biases or put in situations where their political biases um, absolutely have to come into play. And that's very dangerous. Elliot, some things about war never change and other things have changed. Well, this is in many ways a virtual war on lots of levels, technologically um, uh, and in terms of how people think of it. You write about uh, the withdrawal as a kind of digital Dunkirk, um, which reflected the fragmentation of reality, didn't it? That this withdrawal, it wasn't Dunkirk. It wasn't just Dunkirk on the internet. It reflected a, a different kind of way of doing war, of avoiding war, and a different epistemolo epistemology, epistemology, whoops, I'm getting that word 
it's a long word, a different epistemological way of, of thinking about war and reality. Is that fair in terms of the digital Dunkirk and the war and the retreat from Afghanistan, from Kabul? Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, the retreat from Kabul, it was a crowdsourced evacuation. So in the, the, the platform on which it was crowdsourced were obviously all of these digital platforms, your, your cell phone, WhatsApp, Signal. Um, and the level of connectivity made it so, you know, every Afghan who was scrambling to get out could reach out to their entire network. And I would say, you know, my whole network lit up as Kabul was falling. And, um, you know, my experience was by no means unique. Um, so I, I agree with you. It, it, it are, the way we are all connected across the globe um, changes the face, you know, the reality and the psychology around conflict. Um, it doesn't, it makes it so it can no longer really be localized. It becomes globalized. You know, yes, the, the fighting might be localized, but the, the, the response and the way we have to experience it is in a much more global and interconnected way. And you saw this case in point in the fall of Kabul. The war is everywhere and nowhere. Some of your chapters take place in Venice, for example, and in a way the war comes to Venice, but of course you're not actually in the war. Should we be celebrating or mourning this digitalization, this network effect in war, Elliot? Um, I don't know if it bears, you know, one necessarily or the other. I just think it's a it's a new reality and we have to figure out how to make how to make meaning of it. Um, but for me, it was certainly, it was, you know, many, you know, Afghanistan is not the first war that's end, ended, and it's not the first war that has ended tragically for sure. But I would say it's one of the first wars that has been experienced in this digital, in this digital manner. And I think that uh, going forward, we're going to be experiencing war that way. Again, local wars experienced globally um, uh, in the future. And the reverse. Finally, uh, Elliot, we did a show i've done a couple actually with robert draper one of the best chroniclers of the iraq war and he argues that we need to still care about the iraq war finally for you why should we still care about the afghan war it's forgotten we've got new things to worry about new things to think about new things to hope for why should we care about afghanistan because we're all connected i mean Look, what, what, you know, what's the what's the most what's one of the most significant global policies going on right now? It's the war in Ukraine. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take a huge sophisticate to recognize that in the summer of 2021, NATO suffers its greatest military setback in the history of the alliance, and six months later, Vladimir Putin of Russia invades Ukraine, uh, and the only thing stopping him was NATO. So obviously, you know, he was watching what happened in Afghanistan. There is a connection between Afghanistan. And Ukraine. Furthermore, I would argue that you know, had 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 NATO not overperformed in Ukraine, whereas it underperformed in Afghanistan, had it not overperformed and and acted very strongly as an alliance, and had Ukraine fall into Russia, I think you would see it would be far more likely that China would have moved on Taiwan, and we'll have to see what happens in China. But again, this you know, this is all connected. We are all connected in. Um, you know, and the question is just, you know, when when do people start paying attention to the ways that we are connected, our national security is connected, which means, you know, our safety at home. Yeah, we really are all connected and on lots of different levels. And Elliot Ackerman does a wonderful job in the fifth act, America's end in Afghanistan, a novelist treatment, but a man who's not just a novelist who also fought in Afghanistan 
really complicated, sophisticated, but also very accessible and readable treatment of one of America's biggest disasters, most complicated and tragic foreign policy disasters. Congratulations, Elliot, on your new book, which I'm sure will be a bestseller like most of your other books. What else are you reading these days in addition to The Fifth Act? Well, you've read that. You've written that. So I'm not sure you're right reading it anymore. Um, you know, I just recently finished a biography by the historian Andrew Roberts about George III called The Last King of America, um, which I which I enjoyed and sort of uh, gives a sympathetic portrayal of George III, which you don't see often uh, in history. Things so, would have been very different, Elliot, if you hadn't thrown us out. You wouldn't have got involved in Afghanistan, would you? Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. You I'm joking. I'm first. joking. <laughs> but um, that, that was a great read. And um, by way of fiction, I, I've been reading some books by Stefan Zweig, who is a, a writer I, I admire, who wrote about 100 years ago. Um, so some of his novels uh, I've, been, I've been enjoying this summer. A Viennese writer. That's right. Yeah. And a great one.